Today, I'm thrilled to be bringing you another interview with an aviation professional and a career coach and counselor. James O'Neill has a very colorful background in aviation. He's gone through the ups and downs and all the turbulent times like so many of us have. And he's going to bring a really fresh perspective to the show in terms of the pilot partner relationship, working together as a team in the uh, career of the pilot, if you will, how to establish that good communication, as well as what his company does to help pilots make those good decisions, not just create a great resume, um, not just do the interview prep, depending on where they are in their career and what they want to do, but truly help them identify the key factors that's going to benefit them long term, as best anyone can tell, kind of looking into a crystal ball in terms of their career. And he walks you through what that strategy is from not only the pilot perspective, but the partner perspective too. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to the Pilot Wife Podcast, your ongoing checklist for navigating your first class life as a pilot wife and aviation family. I'm your co-captain, Jackie Elmer. I've been a pilot wife for over three decades, and I cannot imagine any other lifestyle. Yes, there's no doubt it's a mix of turbulence and blue skies, but what life isn't? I'm here to bring you the best that the aviation life has to offer. If you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, details are at the end. And if you want the Pilot Wife Survival Guide and Checklist, go to pilotwifechecklist.com. Now, stow your baggage, strap in, and let's unpack the Pilot Wife life. So James O'Neill, so nice to have you and welcome to the Pilot Wife podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes. So um, I'm really honored and I'm excited to bring this show to my audience specifically, who does consist largely of pilot wives, pilot partners and spouses, as well as a lot of pilots listen to and others in aviation, because it's not, even though it's called Pilot Wife Podcast, it's not just limited to that. But kind of what I wanted to do most specifically with having you on is kind of talk about the role of the of the partner partnering together in a career because you have such a rich experience with your own aviation background as well as Raven's Raven careers which we'll get to um but that's kind of where I know our audience is leaning to. So let's just start at the beginning. I know you have a pretty fun background with your start in aviation. And as a mom, I'm going to scold your dad for not telling your mom, but I'm going to let you share that story. So tell us a little bit about you, your background um, with aviation, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So I have, uh, I was a little, I'm one of those weird pilots. Um, I was terrified of flying. Uh, I, I threw up, I think for the first 10 flight lessons I did every lesson. Um, so I have a little bit of a, of a different background and I'm married to someone who is in aviation. Um, which helps with some of the craziness, as I'm sure a lot of the spouses and significant others, the pilot extended family, as, as we like to call them, um, are, are aware, right? Because there's, um, there's a lot of ups and downs. And, and um, 
you can always tell someone who's married to a pilot because they're just not impressed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, never. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. For good reason. All right. I mean, we're losing our jobs, moving across the country, you know, eating, you know, carrot sticks out of hotel rooms. It's not as glamorous as, as, as everyone thought it was when they were getting into the, into the lifestyle, if you will. Um, but yeah, no, I had a, I had a little bit of a, a unique entry into flying. Um, when I got to high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. When you get to your junior year, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, moms and dads listening to this uh, who are probably trying to help their children navigate uh, what what they're going to do for a career. Um, I don't have any pilots in my family. Um, I'm Irish Catholic from the Northeast. Uh, so I always like to joke around and I tell everyone I'm the failure in the family. I became a pilot. Um, everybody else is cops, nurses, and firefighters. Um, that's just what you do when you're Irish Catholic from the Northeast. So I get to my junior year of high school and it was between uh, cop and pilot. I have no idea why. Um, so I took some tours of some universities as I'm sure a lot of moms and dads are doing uh, right now. And um, you know, went down to Florida and looked at Embry-Riddle and Florida Institute of Technology and a couple of other schools. And they kind of impressed me. So I came back and told my parents, I think I wanna be a pilot. Uh, I spent about seven minutes thinking about it. So it was a well thought out plan. <laughs> uh, as did most 16 or 17 year olds. When you ask them, what are you, you're asking them to make a decision that's going to last for the next 70 years and they've been on the earth for 16, right? It's a bit of an unfair question. Um, so my dad said, cool, let's go take some, some flying lessons. He had a, a friend who was a cop and a pilot. And so he kind of got some recommendations for some flight schools. Uh, and he said, whatever you do, don't tell your mother. Um, so I, my first probably three or four flying lessons, I don't think my mother knew I was taking flying lessons. Um, but my, my dad was, um, a cop and a college professor and owned his own business at the time. And the flight school is about an hour away from where we lived. So every Saturday morning we'd get up at 6am. My dad would drive me down to lessons. Um, while I was flying, he was grading college papers for his students. Um, and then when I landed, we would drive an hour back and, and talk about kind of what the experience was like, um, my dad is very mechanical uh, and I am not. So even though he was not a pilot, when I was learning systems, he could explain a lot of those things to me, how engines worked and electricity and so on and so forth. Um, so it was a pretty cool uh, experience. Um, and uh, I ended up getting my private pilot while I was a senior in high school. And then from there went to, to Embry-Riddle and graduated and then, you know, did a whole bunch of other fun things. What'd your mom say when she found out and how'd you tell her? Oh, I wasn't there for that. That was between them. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's happy now. You know, the funny thing is, so I've been flying professionally for over 20 years at this point, And I call my parents every week, you know, say, hello, how are you doing? And my mother still goes, oh, I'm so nervous you're going flying. You're like, mom, I, I do this for a living. Um, she's a terrified flyer. So um, I think that's probably why, but yeah, it's still funny. Still to this day, um, I get the, uh, I'm, I'm scared you're going flying today. Like, okay, well, I'm going to do it tomorrow too. <laughs> my mom's a terrified flyer too. And it's yeah. driven me and my husband crazy for all these years, but what are you going to do? Well, I mean, you know, and, and to empathize with my mother, right. I was taking flying lessons before I had a driver's license. So, you know, you have your kid getting up in an airplane. They can't even drive a car. I mean, if you think about it, non-aviation family, that's going to be weird. Um, that's a, just an odd concept. So, yeah, my husband did the same. I think he got his at 15 
Yeah. So it was, you know, it was absolutely the same thing. And I, it's kind of funny. I should, I should ask my mother-in-law what her thoughts were. I, I never yeah. did. I've, I've never had that conversation with her. So. Yeah. So I, my flight instructors, every time we were flying, they were trying to quit it to driving. And I got, I don't have a driver's license. I don't, um, I've actually never driven a car. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so, um, yeah. So it was, I don't know. It was a fun, different experience. That's funny. I don't know. I've never flown a plane, but I've driven a boat and a car and it's nothing. The no, no, it's not. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so you went to Embry-Riddle and then what? Um, September 11th happened. Uh, and so, you know, my private pilot, I had seven flight instructors in nine months. And then my instrument, commercial, flight instructor, multi-engine, all had the same instructor for the entire thing. <laughs> so, so I had the same instructor for about three years. Um, and great, great instructor, still stay in contact with him to this day. Um, but it also taught me a really brutal lesson about the industry. Uh, because about three years later, when I got hired at NetJets, he was hired about 50 seniority numbers below me. The guy who taught me everything was now junior to me at a company because of luck. Not skill, not intelligence, not capabilities, not flight times, not ratings, luck. Um, it's an interesting profession in that way. There's a lot of that. I, I mean, I've observed it over the 30 almost, you know, 38 years in aviation, 33 years married to a pilot. Um, yeah, you see that all the time. And it is kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, I was fortunate. Um, I, I'm pretty close to my family. Uh, and so one of the folks that was kind of mentoring me through a lot of that was my uncle, who is not a pilot, he's a banker. Um, but he used to always say, he goes, you, you really better be nice to people on the elevator ride up, because you're sure as hell going to see them on the elevator ride down. Um, and uh, I've kind of always remembered that. And that has come back. I can't tell you how many times where um, I've run into somebody on the road and it was somebody I taught years ago. Um, and now they were in a much higher position, uh, you know, or, um, you know, in this business, you know, I've run into somebody and, and I've talked to them about something. And then two or three years later, they come back and you know, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, man, I really hope I was nice to you when I met you. Right. And, and I am, I'm, I always, you know, try and be as kind as I can and be as giving of my time as I can. And, and I find that kind of returns itself 10 times over because you just never know when you're going to be working for somebody who used to be working for you. Um, and you want them to have fond memories of you when you're working for them. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you never know when they're going to be sitting across the table as part of the interview committee. Exactly. Either. Exactly. So there's, yeah, there's a lot yep. that goes into that. Yeah, so, never burn a bridge. No, no, not unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. Um, so. so I think you got pulled over once by a cop in an airplane, if I recall. That is correct. Man, you did your research. <laughs> so I was part of that having seven flight instructors in nine months. Um, the uh, I had a I was like in between my fourth or fifth instructor and the instructor assumed the last the previous instructor had taught me how to operate in and out of towered airports and he didn't so they sent me on a solo cross country to an airport that was controlled and I had no idea what I was doing and I had a radio failure and so I just landed anyway 
Uh, and I remember pulling off the taxiway and hearing like rumbling behind me and it was a seven, three going into reverse. So it was a little closer than I think everyone wanted it to be. Uh, and so the uh, airport police uh, came out and met me. Um, so I got to meet them in an airplane and, and the police officer is very kind. He goes, I don't know why I'm here to talk to you, but uh, the guys in the tower said they just want you to leave. And I went, okay, cool. I'll talk to you later <laughs> and left. Um, so, you know, you got like 22 hours in an airplane, you know, you learn some things the hard way. Oh boy, um, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. But I got pulled over in an airplane before I've ever been pulled over in a car by law enforcement. So that's my uh, my claim to fame. You have several claim to fames. You have two yeah. ones with one company. You mentioned NetJets. Tell us about your claim to fame. Yeah. So talking about being nice to people, um, my wife got hired at NetJets right when we graduated college. And um, she... Uh, she was in the um, crew food ordering business. So basically whenever the pilots wanted their crew meal, she would order them. And um, one of the other people that worked with her had a party. And so I went to that party um, and it turns out she was friends with a bunch of chief pilots and they were chief pilots at that party too. Um, and I beat the ever living snot out of a guy in beer pong um, because I don't drink. So he didn't know I wasn't drinking. Uh, so he was getting progressively worse and I was just staying the same. And it was funny because at the end he goes, so like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a pilot. And he goes, well, why don't you come work for us? And I went, well, you guys aren't calling. He goes, oh, well, I'm a chief pilot. Here's my card. And, you know, two months later I get hired. Um, I was the youngest person on the seniority list. I got hired on a Monday uh, making $30,000 a year. The union passed a new contract on Wednesday. And by Friday I was making 90, um, which was a huge deal. Uh, and then, as you know, two years later, I got the honor of being the youngest pilot ever furloughed from that company. <laughs> uh, so it was a bit of a, a dubious honor. Well, what years were those? 2007 through 2010. Ah, so. I mean, I made it into 2010 by like four days. It wasn't, you know, anything remarkable, but I, I made it in 2010 by about four days. I got, I got hired in November 2007. I got married, got hired by NetJets and bought a house in the same seven day, one week period. So it was a little bit of a hectic time. That is a hectic time. Yeah. That goes if you take those psychology tests, that's like yeah, good reason that you'll never stay married or your life's gonna go upside down or a bunch of things. It's like those different risk factors, which still going well. Yeah. Um, so you know, but hey, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but you know, my wife Eileen has been through uh, a lot with this um, and been very patient. So um, you know, I think we're at a point now where we both know what we're getting into. So uh, and. So let's, let's talk about that specifically. I mean, what, what is it? You mentioned that she comes from the aviation background as well. I do too. So I come at it as slightly different, I think, than somebody coming into a relationship without that background, you know, the, the non-normalcy of the aviation world. Talk a little bit about that and how you balance that and any thoughts you have. Um. So I, I think spouses don't get near the amount of credit that they deserve um, for the role that they play in you being successful as a pilot. And when I say spouse, I mean, husband, wife, you know, it, it's, I, I know in, in, in our industry, a lot of people assume the spouse is always the wife, um, but that's actually not the case. Um, and and they really bear a fairly large brunt of what it takes to be, you know, air quotes successful. Um, you know, one of the cool things about my wife, Eileen, is, 
when I go out to go flying, I don't have to worry if something goes wrong at home, is she capable of handling it? Now, the downside of that is when I come home, right? I have the status of a dog or a child when it comes to, you know, like, uh, well, because the whole house operates when you're not there. Right. And so, you know, you come home and all of a sudden you put the spoons in the wrong place or, you know, you're loading the dishwasher wrong or the laundry's not separated correctly, or you're, you end up becoming disruptive in your own home. Um, but really, so, so there's the day to day that I think is, is obviously extraordinarily important. But really, you're gonna just you're just gonna go through a lot of ups and downs, and um, you know the relationships that work best are the ones that I find where the spouse knows how to be supportive and how to kind of light the fire at the right time. Um, because if you get furloughed or downgraded or your base is changed or um, you take a pay cut or you're in contract negotiations or any number of those things, right? Um, it's funny as, as pilots, you know, we get the credit of being these like really strong A-type personalities. There's a lot of times where these things go sideways in our careers where you, you can literally watch pilots have all their self-esteem just deflated to almost zero instantly. And it's always the spouse sitting there going like, okay, nope, you're going to put your pants on today. You're going to go out. You're going to go talk to people. You're you know, like, they're that kind of driving force, of, which is the case for me. Um, but I think it's more helpful when your spouse understands the insides of the industry. It's not required, but if they're actually interested in what you're doing, I think that is much more helpful. I so appreciate that you brought that up. There's a couple of points I want to make. One, I want to come back to that, um, you know, being the outsider in your own home, because that's kind of funny. But yeah. first, I want to go to the whole, um, I think that's such a good point of, you know, there's a lot of talk out there about the um, ego and arrogance of a pilot or whatever it is. And you have to, you have to have a strong constitution or something to be able to take on. I mean, there's a lot of stress. You've got a lot of responsibility flying passengers around too. You know, you've got a bunch of other souls on board as they call it and that kind of thing, but you can, like you can get your butt basically handed to you on a platter in one day where you've built up all this, you're, you're responsible for an income and all that kind of stuff. And then based on the economy or what's going on in the Gulf or, you know, fuel prices or all that kind of stuff, it can all end on a dime. A company folds, a company merges, you get moved to the bottom of a seniority list. This is airline specific. And I know there are different types of flying, but um, talk a little bit about uh, how you feel like a partner can be supportive, the best things to say, wait, how to act, that type thing. Yeah. So it's funny because as a pilot, right, if there's an engine failure, passenger in the back dying from a medical condition, um, a fight in the back between passengers, uh, level six thunderstorm, icing, moderate turbulence, I'm trained for all that. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it's not stressful at all, but you know, I remember talking to a, an American um, captain, we were doing some interview prep with him and uh, he was, I think he was going for like a check airman position. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and he was talking about right after um, air, you know, right after airways had the Airbus go down in the Hudson river, he goes, I was taken off at a Newark airport. And he goes, same thing happened. We had a flock of birds come across the window. He goes, we, we only lost one engine. 
Um, he goes, you know what the first thought that went through my head was? I went, what? He goes, man, I'm going to be late for dinner. Right? So you think about that. You talk to a normal person on the street. You're like, okay, you're taking off. You're 600 feet off the ground. Birds go into your engine. Boom, loud explosion. Flames coming out the back, right? And you're like, oh, I'm going to be late for dinner. I'm trained for that. We do that a million times in a simulator to the point to where it does not even get your blood pressure up. What I'm not trained for is getting a phone call on a Sunday that says, hey, on Tuesday, your paycheck's going to stop coming in. What I'm not trained for is there's nobody that's looking to hire me to fly an airplane right now. What do I do? Right? And it turns out it doesn't matter if you're a pilot or not um, when it comes to figuring out how to solve those problems. And that's where spouses come in. Because part of it is, to be honest, you know, armchair psychology on just keeping self-esteem up, right? Some of it is being kind enough to reduce home stress, especially when as a spouse, you're bearing the brunt of it, right? So when I got laid off, Eileen did not. So she was going to work eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, and then coming home, I didn't clean anything. I was on the couch. I could not get, I get up off the couch. I was so disoriented and depressed. And she would make dinner. She would clean. She, like, she basically ran everything. Now, I, it took about two or three weeks. And then she was like, okay, hey, look, not in a, you know, she would come home and she would go, okay, hey, what are you, you going to do? And I went, well, I, if I can get these names of these people, I can go out and I can do A, B, and C. And she goes, okay, well, when are you going to do that? Okay, I'll do it tomorrow. I got away with that for about three weeks. And finally, she realized, yeah, you're not going to be able to do this without some help. So she said, okay, tomorrow when I come home, we're going to pull your computer out together. You tell me what to do, and I will physically Google the names and write down the, the contact information. So she did. Then she went, okay, you need to update your resume. Okay, good. Pull your resume up. Tell me what to do, and I will type it in there for you. And then she went, okay, cool. I'm going to get your suit dry cleaned. And then I'm going to drive you around to every one of these people. And I will sit in the parking lot while you walk inside and talk to them. If she didn't do that, I, I knew what I needed to do. I just couldn't actually do it because the rejection was so brutal. I just couldn't get through the rejection. And because you look, if you're going to be successful, you're going to go through a lot of rejection. And you can read all those memes that like re rejection is not rejection. It's just redirection. And that's freaking great. If that gets you up in the morning, knock yourself out. That doesn't work for me. Rejection is just getting hit in the head with a hammer for me, or at least it used to be. Now I'm kind of used to it. So it doesn't even phase me anymore. Um, but when you get hit with something like that, where basically your whole identity is pulled away because you're no longer, right? You, whenever you meet someone, they ask you three questions. What's your name? Where are you from? And what do you do? I'm James. I'm from Ohio and I'm a pilot. The next logical question is who do you fly for? You don't have an answer to that question, right? Which means you just want to hide inside. So how do you as a spouse take a look at anywhere between 150 and 250 pounds of mass that is immovable, right? That's your spouse sitting on the couch. And it's a, it's a tough gig. And you got to figure out when to push, how hard to push, when to pull back. And there's no manual for it. 
there's no instruction booklet. You're going based on your own intuition of knowing that per hopefully when you're going through it, you've been married for some years so that you at least know enough about each other on when to push, how hard to push, when to pull back, so on and so forth. But it's a, not an envious position to be in, I think, for either spouse or pilot. Well, thank you first for your vulnerability and sharing that. I think that's going to really empower a lot of people hearing that and encourage them both from the pilot perspective and the partner perspective of kind of knowing what to do and knowing that, A, it's normal if you have that emotional, you know, free fall when something like that happens and, and from the partner perspective, how to, how to jump in and, and save everything. <laughs> so yeah. Speak. I mean, look, the, realistically, if you think about it from that engine failure thing I said earlier, the only, or the most effective way that you're going to not be super stressed about this is either you've been terminated a lot of times or you've been furloughed a lot of times. And either one of those, you have to have some years under your belt. You've got to have some experience in the industry. So if you think about all the people that went through coronavirus, how many of them were two, three years into this? That's really early in your career to have to figure that out. It's almost unfair. Um, and that's kind of where this business started was recognizing there's no training for that. And people don't just need a resume or an application or interview prep. They literally need the training. What do I do? When we, when we do coaching sessions, pilots will call up and go, I need a career strategy session. The first thing I do is I go, is your spouse willing to get on the call? And they're like, will you do that? Well, yeah. If you can have him or her on the call, they're going to have a whole set of information and perspective that you and I are going to miss without having them there because they've heard every one of your boring stories a million times. They know what makes you happy. They know what makes you upset. You know how many times I'm on a coaching session or a strategy session and, and you know, the pilot's like, oh, I want to do A, B, and C. And the spouse is like, you remember three years ago when you were doing that, you were complaining? Oh, yeah, that's right. Why was that? Well, because of this. Oh, we, we want to put that in there, right? You know, most pilots, like well above 90%, work closely with their spouse on making these decisions. They're not making them in a vacuum on their own. Their spouse may not know the inner details of the union contract or an aircraft type, so, you know, but that's the last five or 10% you can talk to your buddies about, right? But they know all the other stuff um, about what makes you happy, um, what makes you fulfilled, what's going to be right for your family, right? They provide a lot of perspective on that non-technical perspective, which is more valuable than the technical stuff. The technical stuff's easy to find. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So I want to deviate back quickly to, um, you know, walking, coming home. I have a bunch of places to go. You've just given me a lot of good stuff. So um, I want to backtrack a little bit to talking about, you know, walking back into your home and kind of being the, the foreigner in your home. How, how do, cause I, I totally get that. I, Think I was very guilty of that for a number of years, kind of like possession is 90% of the law. The house is mine. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to adapt it to it when you come home because I've run the whole house and managed kids and blah, blah, blah. So what's the best way to partner together on that with good communication so that A, because the last thing I know for me that I ever wanted to do, it wasn't an intentional thing to ever make him feel like he was a stranger in his own home or not welcome, or it's my rules and you have to adhere to them. So share some insight from your perspective on that. Because I do yeah. see that. I see that in the pilot white proofs. Like you mentioned it. Like how come he doesn't know where anything goes in the house? Like he lives here. 
So Yeah. So there's two things to that. So first is I don't have any children. I don't have any animals. So keep that in mind. That makes my life significantly simpler because it is extraordinarily disruptive when you have children, especially young children, because, you know, mom or dad, you know, in this case, we'll say mom, right? Mommy, mommy cuts it in triangles, not squares. You're like, well, mom's not here right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, there's all these, they're used to a routine and that routine, you know, um, little changes to that routine becomes even more disruptive. Now, as the kids get older, right, they start becoming used to that rhythm and they become more flexible, which, you know, if done properly can end up setting them up in terms of life of being way more flexible to change. And they'll have actually significantly less stress when those disruptions happen, but that's a whole different topic. Um, I think the second thing is look on my end as, as the one that is the foreigner is recognizing I am a foreigner in my own home. And I don't think there's a problem with that. If I'm spending 18 days a month, not in my house, I live in my own house less than 50% of the time. Right. Even if you have a 15 day schedule, best case, you're, you're home 50% of the time, right? If you're picking up any overtime or doing anything, you're hitting 16, 17, 18 days a month on the road. You are a foreigner in your own home. And I think it's important to be respectful of that, right? In terms of, okay, so then where do the spoons go? Right. I, I remember I was, um, had a buddy who was a pilot and he ended up coming home after being gone for four or five days. And show up at his house and he's in uniform and he's doing the dishes. And I was like, when, when did you get home? And he's like about 20 minutes ago. And I'm like, why are you doing the dishes? And like, cause he was still in uniform. I would have thought he would at least change that uniform. It was just really weird. And I was like, why, why are you doing the dishes? And he goes, Oh, I didn't make the transition um, from, from being a captain. He goes, so I came home and told her she was doing the dishes wrong. He goes, so now they're my responsibility. And I went, yeah, that wasn't uh, that wasn't a smart movie. Goes, yeah, I just didn't didn't make the mental switch, right? You know, you're no longer at work. You don't hold that status anymore. Um, when I was a kid, my like I said, my dad was a cop, and so my dad would come home and he would start talking a certain way, and my mother would turn to him and go, "Yo, lieutenant, you're not at work," and it would immediately he would, oh yeah, that's right. Everybody doesn't report to you right? You're not in charge, right? You're home right now. So knock it off. And I, I just, you know, growing up with that and seeing that you've got to make that mental switch when you get home that you're, you're not on a flight deck. We don't have flows. We don't have profiles. We don't have call outs. You're talking to other human beings. I think the second thing on the spouse's end is it ends up being a lot of patience over, okay. Um, I look at intention versus impact. So if I load the dishwasher and I load it wrong, but my intention was to be helpful, my impact may not have been as helpful as you wanted it, but intention does matter. Now, if my impact is consistently I'm making it harder on you, maybe you go, do me a favor. I understand you're trying to help, but you please not do the dishes anymore, right? Um, but it, it really comes down to boiling intention versus impact. I think as a pilot, you have to set the intention that, hey, look, when I come home, it is my home and I want to be comfortable at home, but I also want to not be disruptive to my family or I want to be the least disruptive to my family, right? And then I think on the spouse's end, it's how do I help them feel comfortable at home, not be disruptive, so on and so forth. Um, I think that gets a little complicated when we go into gender roles and stuff like that. So yeah. uh, depending on how you were raised, but um, yeah, I don't know. Turns out I'm really good at cleaning toilets, not so great at dishes. Oh, 
well, that'll turns out, work. Turns out Eileen doesn't like cleaning toilets, so it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> it sounds like it. Then the second place I wanted to come back to was that you mentioned, um, you know, the three questions people ask you, what's your name, where are you from, what do you do? And so is there, and, and I know that you are not in the airline industry, you're in aviation and a pilot, but you're in the, in the private sector. Um, is there a public overall that you've experienced a public um, expectation or perception when they do at, when they do say, oh, who do you fly for? Um, and assuming that you're employed, I get where that goes when you're not employed, but assuming you're employed, is there an expectation or how is that perceived when it's like not an airline, which I think a lot of people in the general public have that expectation. And maybe I say that because I come from the airline industry. What's your perspective on that? Yeah. So that's a, a funny question. Um, so I was in the airlines um, and then left the airlines and then, you know, was at a corporate company where you had to wear a uniform and now fly for a company where I don't have to wear a uniform. So I find the uniform is a big difference because mentally for the people wearing it, it, um, it creates a status. Like nobody, general people do not know the difference between a United uniform, a Delta uniform and a NetJets uniform. They don't. So I can't tell you how many times I was in a NetJets uniform on the back of a United Delta or American airplane with a passenger screaming at me over how they hate United Delta or American. You're like, that's great. I don't work for them. I don't know what to tell you, right? Like, um, so to the general public, you know, now it's no different. I mean, if you're an envoy pilot or you're an American pilot, they don't know the difference. They really don't. And they don't care. Um, so most of that's in pilots' heads. Um, now the paycheck matters, right? The time off matters, the work rules matter, but you know, that's once again, that matters more to you, you and your family than it does from a, from a status perspective. When you transition out and you fly airplanes and you don't wear uniforms, it's a lot easier because people don't realize you're a pilot, which I find quite nice. Um, I don't, I spent a lot of time separating my identity of who I am as a person from what I do for a living. So when people ask me who I am, I, I don't really bring up the pilot stuff um, because I don't want to talk about landings and turbulence and I'd rather talk about something else. And what's your uh, route? <laughs> yeah, one, well, yeah. Um, the, uh, but, you know, the other side of it is, you know, when people go, hey, if they do find out I'm a pilot, who do you fly for? And that's usually a complicated explanation because I have a little bit of a non-traditional flying job. And then usually the question I get is, so when will you ever be able to be a real pilot? When will you ever be able to fly passengers? Uh, and, uh, you know, I usually chuckle at it because um, it's, I get where they're coming from, right? It's intention versus impact. When they think of pilot, they think of United Delta American, they think of passengers, they think that's, you know, if you said you're a FedEx pilot to half the people, they would, that still wouldn't register to them that that could be, a, they think of FedEx trucks, right? Or UPS trucks. Right. Why would you want to fly for them? You're like, yeah, why would I want to make $500,000 a year with, you know, 18 days off a month? That'd be horrible, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, once you separate your ego from what you do, it really, like I said, you can kind of chuckle at it. But I can't tell you how many times I've been in an elevator. Like, when are you going to be a, a real pilot? Like, oh, yeah, after the third accident, it's kind of off the table. They just don't let you do that anymore. <laughs> and they kind of look at you. And then you walk off the elevator. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. So. That's great. Okay, so um, let's go back to 
you uh, were furloughed from NetJets, and I know you ended up starting your own company, Raven mm-hmm. Careers. So let's talk about that, how you transitioned, like that, that time frame from your wife was driving you around, you were looking for a job, you ended up launching this company. Tell us about that story. Yeah, I'm kind of an accidental entrepreneur, I'll be honest. Um, I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have any ideas. Um, I actually didn't even want to start the business. Um, what happened was when I got laid off, I ended up with three jobs. They told me I was getting laid off in like October. And then I, ha- I was getting laid off in like January. So I had three jobs lined up in that time frame, And I was the least qualified of any of my group. I was 26 years old, 3,500 hours flight time, no turbine PIC time. This was back in 2010. There wasn't a lot of jobs out there. And I ended up with three job offers, good ones, flying jets. Um, and, uh, and one was a management position, which is the one that I actually took. Uh, and so all my buddies that had like way more qualifications than I did are like, how are you getting phone? Like, I don't understand this. So I started a weekly phone call and said, I, let's talk about what we're doing, what's working, what's not working. And we'll go from there. It was all strategy based. and. Uh, I was the only one talking. They were all writing. And they were like, you should really start a business doing this. I'm like, you are retarded. (laughs) There is no way anybody on the face of this earth is going to pay to listen to me talk about this. And I fought them for probably six months. And they just kept on being more and more people showing up to the call. And finally, one of the guys pulled me aside and he goes, dude, I'll be honest with you. He goes, I feel bad at the quantity of information you're giving us. And we are not paying you for this. And he's like, so I'm going to send you a check. I'm like, okay. And it kind of went from there. And I started like more and more people wanted to show up. And I was like, I don't, I can't, it's costing me money to do this at this point. Right. So I started a business and it took me probably two or three years to figure out how to deliver what people actually needed. Cause it's not People buy resumes and cover letters and interview prep, right? That is a massive portion of what we do. But the reason why people come to us is the strategy in between. So once that resume is done, once that application review is done, once that interview prep is done, how do you get interviews? How do you pass the interviews? Which job do you take? Like we have people, we've had to start up a new service in the past two months, coaching people through when you get an offer at United Delta and American, which one do you choose? I cannot tell you how many times we're getting on the phone with pilots and their spouses. They're going, shoot, I've got, an inter- I've, got, I've got CJOs, conditional job offers in hand for United and Delta. I don't know which one to pick. I never in my wildest dream thought I'd ever be talking to people about those types of problems. So you can go anywhere to get a resume. You can go anywhere to get an application review. You can go anywhere to get interview prep. And I can give you a whole bunch of reasons on why ours is a million times better. But the true differentiator is that is that ongoing support and that ongoing strategy. So you're making the right decisions. And that's that's where it originally started was strategy only. Um, turns out that makes a difference. So would you that what, did you found that company in 10, 2010? I was furloughed in January 10th. It was probably the 12th the company started. Very good. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Um, so give us a little bit of insight. I don't want, without giving away all your secrets, obviously you did that years ago for free. 
But yeah. tell us a little bit, and it's kind of interesting. I, I know those questions are out there because I see them in the forums. I see them saying, my husband, and again, I, I don't mean to generalize or genderize, but um, that's the group that most yeah. of the groups that I'm in um, saying, you know, my partner got um, a job offer or, you know, a CJO for blah, blah, blah. How do they pick? And I'm kind of like you. I'm like, wow, when did that happen in the industry? But so how, let's talk a little bit about the um, the strategy that goes into from the perspective of understanding quality of life, what your career goals are, is how much it matters to you to, you know, be a wide body captain at the end of your career for a legacy. I mean, those different type things. Why don't we actually just give them the secret? <laughs> it's a lot easier. <laughs> let's do. <laughs> um, okay. So it turns out there's a number of factors that actually go into someone making a decision. And so this is where we always start is I go, okay, grab out a sheet of paper and write these down. Type of flying, advancement opportunities, outside the cockpit opportunities, schedule, quality of life, and pay. Those six things are the reasons why someone will either tell you they love their job or hate their job, right? So I could pay you a million dollars a year and have you fly 30 days a month every month. And guess what? People are not going to like the job. If you really, 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 really want to fly long haul international, Spirit is not the airline for you. But if you live in Dallas or Detroit and you want the most flexible scheduling system on the face of the earth, right? the ability to fly highly predictive trips and spend more time at home than you do on the road, then guess what? Spirit might be the right place for you. And so we start with those six things. And then there is a, there is a series of questions that I ask, and it's tailored to each individual person. So I can't, because it depends, are you a military person? Or are you a regional pilot? Are you an ultra low cost pilot or a legacy pilot? Like, you know, uh, we had a guy who we have a number of clients we work with that took the early out from Southwest that in their late 50s, early 60s, went to another legacy airline, right? Imagine getting hired by United at 60. Imagine getting hired by Delta at 60, right? It's a different conversation for someone like that than it is someone who's 26 and an envoy captain. It's a different conversation. So, so we can go through a, a set of questions. And what happens is most people, most pilots and their spouses are having uh, what I call the pilot seizure. They're looking at arbitrary data points that have no bearing on the actual decision. And they cannot discern what is important, what is urgent, and what should I throw in the garbage. And what we do in those sessions is we whittle it down. I did this with a guy yesterday. He was spinning in circles. And I went, you're talking about all this stuff over here, but it really actually sounds like these two things right here. What is the actual problem for you? And he went, shoot, never thought about it that way. He goes, those are the actual two things, aren't they? Yep. And then I said, hold on one second and started talking to his spouse. And I went, okay, can you write these questions down? this is what you and he need to talk about when we get off the phone because he was going to keep spinning. So I needed her 
to keep him organized when we got off the phone. Right. And I, I'm not saying this to be funny, right. It's just, he's got too much information in his head and he can't, he's can't pin down, you know, what, what do I need to focus on? And so I had a conversation with her and said, look, these are the things, these are the factors. This is why you would want to do it, why you would not want to do it. I need you guys to continue that conversation. And then we're going to follow up in a week and we're going to make an actual decision. Come back a week later. And they're like, this is the decision I want. And here's why. Now, once you know that that's the right decision, all the barriers are removed, right? Now you want that resume done. You want that application done perfectly. You're pulling your own records to make sure that everything's disclosed accurately. When we tell you to reach out and start networking with people, you don't care how many people tell you no, because you know you only got to be right once. You get that internal letter of recommendation, which now all of a sudden, guess what? You're getting interviews. I, got a, I have a guy who's not leaving the military for 14 months interviewing at a major airline right now. It's one of the cargo operators. He did not anticipate that happening that far out, right? Folks, I uh, got a guy who's a Marine, started working with him and he ended up getting a chief pilot meet and greet. And now he's got the invite to take the assessment for one of the legacies. He's gonna have a conditional job offer in hand three months before he leaves the military. Now all that family stress of what am I going to do when I make this major transition and all of a sudden I'm jumping into this new world I don't understand, that's gone. All he has to do is execute. He knows how to do that. He was in the military. <laughs> military is about execution, right? You got to get things done. And so we lay out the path. All they have to do is execute. But the path is laid out. It's not a cookie cutter thing. It's laid out based on a really deep level conversation with you and your spouse over what matters to your family. Sometimes we have kids jump into the conversation. If you have kids that are in high school or even kids that are slightly older, they're going to have to be supportive of this. Now, are they making high level decisions? They're not. But you need buy-in from your entire family because it is not going to be smooth. It's going to be worth it, but it won't be smooth. My opinion, it'll be worth it. I guess I can't say that for everybody. That's the secret though. That's the secret sauce. I love that. And if I could just put a plug in for coaching, strategizing, whatever you absolutely want to call it, you, no one can see their blind spots. That's why there are coaches and that's why yeah. there are, you know, all of that. Nobody can see their blind spots. So it's so important. And I love that you bring the spouse into it because now you've got two people helping weigh in on what those blind spots are and, oh, remember this and all of that. So yeah, that's huge. When I talk about coaching and strategy, the way I explain it is this has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with blind spots. There is a reason I can't cut my own hair. It's because I can't see the back of my own head and I can't reach very easily. This is, it's not a matter of intelligence. You can be the smartest person on the face of the earth. You still, your eyes will never see the back of your head. Now you can get a mirror. And you can then try and, you know, reach your arm around. The, it's not going to look good when it's done. Nobody, I guess there's probably one person out there that cuts their own hair, right? But nobody goes out and cuts your own hair. You either pay somebody else to do it, or you ask one of your friends or your spouse to do it for you, right? So it's the same thing with the strategy. We are there to be the mirror. We are there to see the blind spots. We're there to reach the spots on the back of your head that you can't with that razor. Yeah. That's how it works. Good stuff. So I'm curious in any part of the 
of the process when you're working with the couple, if you will, um, the pilot and the partner spouse, do you do any coaching in terms of like communication around um, the upsets, the turbulent times in the industry? Like, you know, we kind of talked about communication, which is essentially what it is in terms of them coming home. I'm not necessarily talking about all that, but do you go through any prep in terms of the realistic expectations that as you and I both know, and most people do, you know, aviation forever will be tied to the economy, um, oil prices, conflicts around the world, all of that. How do you, how do you work with them with that within the scope of what you do or do you? Yeah. So uh, strategy is kind of like surfing. So when people are out there surfing and they're riding a really high wave, they think that wave is never going to crash. And then when the wave crashes, they think there's never going to be another wave to ride again. And the reality is the longer you surf, the longer you realize waves come and waves go and waves come and waves go. And so when you're on the top of a high wave, enjoy every second of it because it will eventually come down. And that's okay. That's the nature of how things work, right? And when that wave comes down, it's okay. There's going to be another wave to ride, right? So what we end up focusing on is when the wave is high, how do you enjoy it? And how do you keep yourself in a position that when that wave comes down, you're okay. It's not catastrophic. And when the wave is down, how do you maximize your use of that time so that when the next wave comes, you're in the exact right position on your surfboard, ready to ride it. That's how we do it. Right now, everything is going great. So everyone wants to focus on how do I ride the wave well? Cool. That's what we talk about. Um, as the wave comes down, and it will, I mean, I'm not saying people are going to get furloughed, right? But maybe you get a little less overtime than you anticipated. Now you have time to do stuff with your kids. Um, maybe uh, there's an opportunity to swap bases, right? Or take a new aircraft type, right? Those waves are going to, they're going to come and go. It's, it's not a complete, like you're either hired or furloughed or, there's a lot of these opportunities that pop up in between of all these different waves. And you go, I'm on this wave over here. I want to get that one over there. Right. And so right now we're trying to help people pick the right wave and ride it as high as they can. Why would a 60 year old take the early out at Southwest, for instance, and go to work for one of the legacies? If I mean, I kind of consider them one these days, but well, what goes into that? couple different things. I mean, some of it is, you know, if you've been furloughed earlier on in your career and no one really knew when this went bad, how bad it was going to get. And if you're looking at, Hey, look, the rest of my career, I'm probably not going to touch another airplane anyway. Take the early out, save a job. Now, if you're in a financial position where you cannot risk not making a certain amount of income. Um, and I know a lot of people, you know, they blame, hey, senior captains, they're buying boats and houses. You know what? Some people have special needs kids. Some people have a spouse that had a catastrophic medical condition. Everybody's not in a bad financial spot because they made a bad financial decision. Life is not predictable. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many folks we work with, you know, kid was injured, right? And they're dependent on that money. Uh, to make sure that their, their kids taken care of or, or whomever. And so if they were risking getting furloughed and losing a boatload of money, then taking that, that, um, that early out might've been the right decision. Now, in terms of why would they go back? The reality of the situation is the brain is a muscle. 
And just like your arms and your legs, if you don't use them, they atrophy. And so most people, because this is how we're educated, have thought through the financial component of retiring. They have not thought through the emotional component of it. And so when all of a sudden they retire and they're like, I got, you can only play so much golf. Um, they've got to go figure out something to do. And, and, you know, you have some of the younger pilots that go like, oh, well, you know, boredom's not a serious problem. You should be able to deal with it. Go take a look at what the rate of depression was during coronavirus. And all, all you had to do is sit inside your house, right? I mean, nice house. You got TV. It's not a prison cell. And how many people went into massive bouts of depression? Because we're not designed to sit still and do nothing. There's only so much Netflix you can watch. There's only so much golf you can play. There's only so much gardening you can do. We're social animals. We like being around each other. We like going out and doing things. We like smelling fresh air, going for walks, going to restaurants. We are not designed to sit inside. Right? Just, guess what? Coronavirus is a good indication of what your retirement is going to look like if you're not emotionally ready. So if you, if you thrive during coronavirus and that time off is great for you, congratulations, you're ready to retire. But if it was torture, that's, that's what retirement could look like if you don't have anything planned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So tell us a little bit more about Raven Careers and how people find out about you, what you offer. Tell us about that. Sure, so the Tuesday email uh, comes out every Tuesday at 8 p.m. We talk about industry uh, news, usually uh, data and stats on what's going on hiring-wise. Um, otherwise, ravencareers.com, click on the Contact Us tab, and you get to put time directly on my calendar. Um, now, it will be two to three to four weeks in the future because um, we're slammed. Uh, but you will get, we will get to talk. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so that's the best way for folks to contact us. That's easy enough. So now I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball based on what you know from the past and just tell us what, what do you see overall in aviation in general, wh wherever you want to go with that in the next five to 10 years. So uh, having been through this enough, I have no idea. Um, and, and that's the reality of this business is nobody actually knows. Uh, what it boils down to is what we were talking about earlier about the riding the wave. So everything's going really well right now. How do you take a look at your internal finances and go, where are we at, right? Coronavirus hurt a lot of people. Do we need to build up our savings? Um, do we need to increase our retirement contributions? Are we doing really, really good there? And now you know what? It turns out we need to spend money going on vacation because uh, we've been indoors for three years, uh, right? Like, so what, you know, financially speaking, what's right? Uh, you really need to start having conversations with your family over if I got multiple job interview or multiple conditional job offers at multiple airlines. And I'm not talking like tier one and tier two companies. If you got two or three tier one choices for yourself, if you got job offers, how would you go about choosing that? And I know a lot of people may think, hey, that, that's silly. That's not going to happen. It, it will, especially if you work with us. Um, so... So thinking through, hey, how do I start prioritizing that? Reading about what's going on in each of those individual companies that you're targeting so you know about them. Um, and then starting to think through, hey, look, if you're already on property, do I want that? I can take the upgrade quick, but is that going to be right for my life? 
right? Do I want to commute? So on and so forth. Because for the next couple of years, it's at least right now looking like there's going to be a lot of opportunity in your lap. And, and most pilots are trained on how to handle a limited set of choices. They're not trained on handling 56 choices at once. And that's the situation that we're in right now. And it's quite stressful because you want to make the right decision. You don't want to take this type of opportunity and blow it for your family. So James, again, thanks so much for being on the show. I know that a lot of people are going to get value out of this, both on the pilot side and the partner side and aviation in general. So thanks so much for spending some time and giving us the secrets of the strategy behind getting hired. And I, again, encourage people go to, to go to ravencareers.com and get on your calendar. I appreciate that. And between now and then, I will clean some toilets and not do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And make sure you know where the spoons go. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know I say that a lot when I finish these shows because I'm always wowed by these amazing guests and all the insights that they have to share. So um, hopefully you've gotten a lot of value out of that. What you didn't hear is that I'm reaching out to his wife and maybe you can help me send out some good vibes. I'm really anticipating and hopeful that she will come on the show. I would love to interview her from her perspective of so much that has gone into his career, her career, and navigating life as a pilot wife, as an aviation professional as well, and what she sees from that perspective. So uh, if you have any feedback, you can leave it in the comments below. You can go to ask.pilotwifepodcast.com. I would love to hear from you. And until then, I will see you on the next show. And just one other quick reminder, I am a mindset and peak performance coach, so I work mostly with women to help them rediscover their own sense of identity and purpose and create that better flight plan, avoid that turbulence and put their own oxygen mask on first. So if you are interested in having a discussion with someone who's been a pilot wife for over 33 years, navigating thousands of miles and moments of life in aviation, along with mommyhood and business, schedule a call with me. Go to coach.pilotwifepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing on the show, grab the Pilot Wife Checklist at pilotwifechecklist.com. And if you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, go to ask.pilotwifepodcast.com. Share the show with any pilot wives, military wives, or anyone in aviation you know who might share and benefit from this similar experience. I'll see you on the journey.